This is Creativity in Captivity. I'm Pat Hazel, and my guest today is an Emmy-winning comedy writer, producer, and announcer whose credits include The Jon Stewart Show, The Tonight Show starring Jimmy Fallon, and Saturday Night Live. He takes us through the average work week on SNL, and he demonstrates his amazing gift and range at live looping a variety of flatulence. Coming up, my conversation with the most convivial man in show business, Steve Higgins. That spark of electricity, a skipping stone that sets you free, you're captive to a mystery, the curse of creativity. La, 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 la. <laughs> Thank you, Pat. You are a bit of a Forrest Gump of the comedy world in that you're everywhere something funny is happening. I like to think of it as Zelig, but Forrest Gump's okay, you know. No, Zelig is a good call because you, you're chameleon-like. You can, you can change to the proper environment. I try. I try. Our general focus here is creativity, but you're a really creative guy in my mind. And I guess right off, I will share the immaculate reception of notes given by a director which is that you were the one person who watched my play Bunk Bed Brothers that I wrote with Matt Goldman. And we, we didn't know anything about anything when we wrote this play and nobody had seen it. And you came to the Hollywood office on the fourth floor and sat on a couch and watched us run through this hour and a half thing. And at the end, you only had one note. And that was, there's a groove and you're not in it. Do you recall giving that note? <laughs> <laughs> yes, I do. What's good about that is, first of all, that office was great. That was a fantastic office. And I felt honored that you would ask me to look at it, first of all. It's that thing of uh, where, and maybe it's too, I tend to get too broad in my uh, analogies, but it's all stemming from that thing of the author, the, the people, person must become co-author of the piece. And if you give two specific notes, people don't put their own thing on it. They go, oh, now this is an order. So they don't enjoy it as more. So that's one of my, from then on, I've tried to give notes that are very broad and and humorous. Like now I will, if I'm watching a, a sketch and say the shot is like all floor, they need to tilt the camera up or something like that. I'll usually say the Floor Guild of America called. <laughs> And they wanted to give you an award, but they wouldn't say what for. So things <laughs> like that. But as opposed to like, hey, there's too much floor. Yeah, the writer will go, hey, can we raise that shot a little bit? Or I remember a director once saying, uh, and he used a little hand gesture where he said, uh, you're giving that t gift to me in a box this big, but I need it in a box this big. It's, <laughs> yeah, instead of one, saying yeah. be louder or be quieter, he just sort of made me think, oh, well, how would I do that? And it's also given notes to people that don't tear them down. It's like at work, it's the, you know, people come in who are strangers and they go like, oh, that's not funny. And you're going like, oh, no, 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 we don't. Here's how we say that's not funny. Hmm. Okay. Um, that's it. That's what yeah. I need to do. You don't need to make somebody feel bad about it. You know, just share the wealth. It's sort of more... In the beginning, it's like, let's have a quantity of ideas here, and then we'll focus in on where what makes us laugh. As a producer and writer on SNL, maybe you can share that week of uh, the writers when the celebrity host is involved and what happens really from a Monday to a Saturday, or because I assume you're off Sunday. Yeah. Well, let's go. We'll do non-COVID time. Yes, please. Please. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Non-COVID. Monday, you meet the host. Everybody meets with them in Lauren's office around five or six uh, at night, and you're still recovering from the last show. So you're in there, and everybody says their ideas they're working on, and sometimes they're fake, sometimes they're real, sometimes people, but usually they're they try to be funny. So the host goes, "Oh yeah, there's funny people here. This is nice." And then, and how early do you know who the host is? Do you is it plotted out for the season, or sometimes just a couple weeks before? Yeah, exactly. It's all. Sometimes it's you know way in advance, and sometimes you know the week of. You'll notice if if you're watching the show and there's no card that says next week's host with Daryl announcing it, that means we don't know who the host is next week, or somebody dropped out, or whatever. It's it's uh, it is the craziest thing because, like you said, I think people think of it as like you know how cupboard is cupboard, 
I think they think of Saturday Night Live as a thing, not right. a description. You know what I mean? It's, a, it's like Saturday Night Live, that's just a thing. Yeah, it's Saturday Night Live, what time's it tape? The live is live. It's, the only delay is the, the satellite from Earth to that. So you're watching it in my office, and there'll be like um, the, the studio feed, and then there'll be like Channel 4 NBC, and it'll be off a bit just because of the time it takes to reach the satellite, you know. So Monday night, we've met the host as, as, a, as a staff, mm -hmm. and tell me what happens from there on. Then Tuesday night, they'll come back, and they will meet with all the writers, and they'll go from room to office to office in the cast, and they'll, the cast will tell them their ideas, and usually I'll tell the host, when you hear these ideas, don't think about how you'd, you'd write them. Think about what you would have fun performing them, how you would do them. You know, what would be the thing you'd like the most to do? What would be the most fun for you to do in this sketch? And so then you'll know also when there's like you 40 pieces you're reading, you'll have like a stepping stone of like, okay, I know what I'm doing in this one. I know what I'm doing in this one. And then those are all written. Sometimes people like Jost will write, until he'll turn stuff in at three when read-through is. People stay up all night long. And it's not because they have to. I think it's that thing where it is, what's the word? Society, the whole DNA of the show is everything scooched so that you're at your best at 1130. So if you started working at 8 a.m. writing stuff, you, you, by the time we got to showtime, you'd be exhausted. You know what I mean? You'd be falling asleep. And also, if you could not write at the last minute, you would have never gotten in show <laughs> business. You'd become a lawyer or something would you have some income guaranteed. And then Wednesday, we read through everything, usually about 35 or 40 pieces. And after that's done, we'll go into Lauren's office and we'll, you know, usually five are good, five are, five are great, five are awful, which either they missed the mark or they just didn't do whatever they were supposed to do or they were just bad. Because you can't, you know, it's like even the best writers, sometimes you'll go like, wow, what? I didn't get what you were trying to say there. And then they explain it because some people you go like, wow, I can't wait till, I wonder what they're going to write this week. And then there'll be like 20, they're like, okay. And those will be determined by what, who needs a show, if the host likes it, if somebody's light, if this, this area hasn't been covered. Oh, that was, that topic is good. It's not that great, but we can make it better. And that's when it like, especially with like seasoned writers, they'll be like, well, they can make that better. And, you'll call, and Lauren will call them in and go, well, can you, can you fix this? And what's funny is almost always they will tell you the truth. They'll go, no, gosh, uh, I tried, and that really didn't work out well. Because they know it'll go on. No one wants to see their piece make it on air if it's not the best thing it could be. So if the show's awful, it's our fault. And if it's good, it's our glory. Because there's no network coming in. The only things they say is like, hey, don't say the swear words, which we don't really want to say anyway. Because once you do that, once you break that wall, then why aren't you doing everything? Also, you want to be a show where you're... Where kids can sit with their parents and watch it. Like, I'm all for double entendres, you know, but it's... Right, even a triple entendre you would go for. Exactly, or a quadruple. <laughs> I would say, I would like an innuendo, and this is an up your asso. So let's see if we can make that a little more calming so that, it, you know, if a kid can go, what's that, mom? And she can go, oh, nothing. Then it's okay, because then, then it's not, you're not embarrassing anybody, and it's clever, and you can have fun with it, and... You still have some liberties because you're late night, right? You're at a you're at an hour where you're not no. expected. No, because now we no now we air live in L.A. at eight o'clock. So we air live coast to coast now. Oh, because in the Midwest we air at ten. You know, uh, like when we grew up, it'd be on at ten thirty, and then at in L.A. Then they they, they air the repeat at uh, eleven thirty in L.A. So now we're we're prime time. Wow. Okay, I did not know that. And you, something you mentioned to me while we weren't talking was that the writers have kind of an auteur approach that, that Lauren encourages them to pick the costumes, to go through all the process that in some ways they're writing and directing that initially. Yes, they're producing the whole piece and they, and they use the, the smart ones, use the talent of the, because we have, we have the most overqualified staff in America. Our design department is we're all just won awards on their own. You know what I mean? Eugene Lee designed the sets for the original Sweeney Todd and Candide and, you know what I mean? And the costume people. Well, they, they have to be that good though, Steve, when you're giving them just a few days to assemble a set and design and decorate and do costumes on the fly. I, I heard something about one of the 
um, like maybe it was Melania's outfit or something that they they had to sort of match her outfit from something literally in 24 hours, and there's no time to shop. They have to modify costumes that exist. Or yeah, what's amazing to me is that we do, they do that every week. That they don't win an Emmy every time is insane. It's like because our show you can't compare it to. It's like doing a Broadway play every week because ze there's zero on Monday. There's zero on Tuesday. So you really have like Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday to make a show that is about that week with, and also our wigs. And when we switched to HD, which was years and years ago, the only thing we had to change was we had to make the lace on the wig a little closer to the head. That's it. Because everything was too good to begin with. You've seen the show. You go, it's, I'm still amazed. I've been there since 95. It's, you just go, gosh, I cannot believe this got done. It's just insane. This, the, a pirate ship will be in the middle of the studio. You know, right. a, a castle will be here. Everybody's in 17th century garb. Everybody looks exactly like the same outfits they had in whatever parody this person wrote a sketch about. And the film unit is insane. They go out and shoot things in one day that film companies can't do in a week. Right. Everybody's at the top of their game. And it's a lot of collaboration and it's a lot of people helping each other out and, you know, going like, hey, here's a joke that might work for that. Or There's know. a lot of area here I still want to talk about, but I'm really interested in when you walked in the door. I know that you had other things in your career that led to that, but because you were a guy like me that grew up when the first Saturday Night Live came on, what did it feel like to walk into that space and have a job at Saturday Night Live? I was scared shitless because almost everybody was gone. I was working on the Jon Stewart show, not the successful popular one, the one before that, <laughs> not the Daily Show. And uh, John, who's a delight, just a delight. He I was awesome. He deserves all his success because he really is a great host. Yes, he is just the best. He's smart. And when we were when we were writing on that show, he would come up with stuff that was funnier than we could write. And people would go, oh, you guys wrote that bit for that interview. No, no, we did not. And so in 95, the network thought that they knew everything because they had cast friends. So they said Saturn Live is not funny anymore. God damn it, it's not funny. These people are not funny. Chris Farley's not funny. Adam Sandler's not funny. David Spade's not funny. <laughs> Tim Meadows isn't funny. You know what I mean? All these people, they just wanted to get rid of everybody. And so everybody's said, from what I recall, just went, you know what? If you don't want, I don't want to have to be there. I got career stuff. If you want me to stay, I will. But it was a mass exodus. And so the only people I think were left was like Norm McDonald doing Update who I knew from stand-up days, you know. Molly Shannon had been there for half a season. Tim Meadows, I think Mark McKinney stayed on. And I think that was, that's about it. And then the writing staff was... Will Ferrell wasn't there yet? No. When, when Will Ferrell was my first cast. Will and Daryl and Sherry and Nancy Walls and... I know that you were scared, but there's a weird responsibility, and you've carried it in several of your jobs, where iconic things like a franchise like The Tonight Show gets... Like that announcement for you and Jimmy must have been insane to be the stewards of the Tonight Show. Yeah, I know. Yeah, it's so. Uh, yeah, exactly. It's so crazy. It's I'm so. I have two of the greatest jobs in the world. You have to pinch yourself and go like, you know, why am I so blessed? What happened here that I won the lottery twice over, three times over? You know, it's like. And the two jobs are in the same building. They're three floor. Well, that's that's the reason I can do them because I walk down. They record SNL on eight and they record Jimmy on six. So I just go back and forth and I have an office on 17, office on nine and a dressing room on six. So I go between three floors, you know, I, I get my suit on. Like now I'm doing it from home on a sure microphone because the studio is so small. So I just do the announce via that. But then I could go visit Jimmy in his office with a mask on and we, you know, we hang out every week and, but it's, it is, it's crazy. Now, in addition to announcing, are you on the writing staff of The Tonight Show as well? No. Okay, so you are on the, you're a producer and writer on Saturday Night Live, and you're the announcer and often in sketches or playing a host or? Yeah, just, I'm talent downstairs. I'm talent on on six. There I have makeup and, you know, wardrobe and things like that. And upstairs I'm pleading with makeup and wardrobe, you know, so 
it's an interesting mix. That is that is fun. I have a couple of ideas. One question I'm really curious about for you. That maybe are you really? Are you really curious? I am curious, and you're going to like the question. I think <laughs> this is it could be anywhere in your career. What's the worst idea that you ever fought for? Oh my God, that is a great question. It, it, it does go with that thing. You usually fight for the thing you hate. For some reason you get, it was, I believe, it might have been, oh God, there's so many. <laughs> Maybe we had to write this monologue for Nathan Lane where they sang Hakuna Matata. And I think Dennis and McKay, Dennis McNicholas and Adam McKay. Again, remember too, these are, this is my truth. This is what I remember. And this might be a total lie, but this is how I remember it. And they had Lauren playing the guitar in the Hakuna Matata monologue. And it was like, why do we do that? Why do we have Lauren play the guitar? And he didn't want to do it. He got mad about doing it. We forced him to do it. And it's like, go, yeah, come on. So Nathan Lane, Nathan Lane, who was a delight, by the way, who was one of the most talented people I've ever met in my life, who I always ask, why do you do drama if you can do comedy so well? I still don't understand that. Why you can spend uh, weeks and weeks inside a character that brings joy, or you have to go into the deep part of yourself to get there, which is, you know, what is it? Alec and Hanks and... Nathan Lane, there's few people who can do both as well, you know. Yeah, I mean, it, it blows my mind. He's he's immensely talented. And, of course, when you see him in musical theater, he knows every part of that toolkit to get the laugh or sing the song or do the dance or have the belly laugh. Oh, my. I, I saw him in the front page on Broadway. Did you see that by chance? I did not, but I would have liked to. If you get a chance when you go to New York, go to the Lincoln Center Library because you can watch all those on tape. It's like a master class. And I saw him on a Wednesday, which is that you've done a matinee already and you're exhausted. Wednesday's the worst really night to see a Broadway show. But he and John, they were just, it was, it blew me away. It was so brilliant. They go, how did he think of that bit of business? Everything was, eh. I would, I, I might do it when, when the world opens up again and go watch it again because it was so delightfully old school humor. Well, let me, let me pay a different compliment to you because I, I sort of <laughs> rehashed uh, a quick look at the Downton Abbey parody, the Downton Sixby <laughs> thing. <laughs> yeah, and yeah. I just have to tell people who have not seen this, it was you and Jimmy Fallon and the staff doing your Downton Abbey parody, which there are clips all over YouTube. But there's a great compendium of Steve's extended version of Higgins' Dirty Secret <laughs> that is so funny about you sharding your pants or something. Yeah, yeah. And you go on um, with different words for something about repotting the geranium and, and <laughs> extra beef on your cordita. Different euphemisms for defecating in one's pants, yes. Right. And I would say mostly single entendres and that. Yes, in yes. That. But watching. There's no, yeah. Watching Jimmy try to keep a straight face and Brooke Shields <laughs> try to keep a straight face. I mean, you're, you're, you're a good deadpan guy. Oh, God bless you. Thank you. That was fun. That's fun. Another fun one to look at is um, Mikey Day and Streeter Seidel wrote the sketch with Alec, which Mikey was, wanted to get the, uh, the school record for sit-ups, but he had eaten a, a heavy lunch. So every time he goes up, he expels wind. And so I was doing it live on the booth and there's a, somebody had set up a camera. You were the wind expeller? Yes, I was the one making the noises for each of the sit-ups. So that's one that's worth watching because it's, it's a fun behind the scenes look at, at a grown man making fart noises. This is an audio-only podcast, so maybe you can share a couple of those sounds and maybe tell us how you get the effect, the wet ones and the dry ones. <laughs> this, this is for Tucker. Uh, By the way, Tucker's our recording guy right now, the engineer, so. Right. Thumb, side of the cheek, you did kind of a double. <laughs> and then the squeaker. The stepper, the quacker, the double one. Wait, you got to do that one again. The what one? 
The, the doubler or the squeaker? Give me the squeaker and then the doubler. The, du- the double. You get two tones. Yeah. It's an art. You know what I mean? It's not a science, really. It's more of an art. It is an art. So you obviously get to choose which one you want. Nobody says to you, give me this on a, a leather executive chair or something. Like, no, okay. no. It's more of like, well, you wouldn't tell Picasso what to paint. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like they give me free reign to do that. And the only thing I asked is that they're. Remember that one that went around the farting preacher? I remember Dana Gould showed it to me, which you go like, oh, come on, I've seen this before. And you just keep, it keeps on going <laughs> every time he does this. Every time there's a physical action connected with it, it makes it like you go, okay, that's the, it's because it's like a magic trick. You need that, it can't just come out of the blue. You have to create the illusion of it. So I highly recommend watching that Mikey Day sketch if you want to see fartastics. We will do that. Now you grew up with a house full of boys. So let's just talk about your early years because many of you are in the upper echelon of the comedy business. Uh, Brother Dave, a great comedy actor and has been in a number of series and Brother Al writing on the Kaminsky Method and Malcolm in the Middle and News Radio, all of those sorts of things. So I had met your mom a few times and she was a great matriarch of the the Higgins brothers. But just give me a little bit of sort of the early household where comedy was prevalent, I guess, in competition and probably where fart jokes ruled. What's funny to me is people always go, wow, how can three of you guys be in show business? That seems weird, doesn't it? And it's to me, it's like, well, why wouldn't? You grew up in the same house. Humor was the coin of the realm in our house because we didn't really yell. So you had to burn some. The greatest gift is burning someone. You know, that's the greatest <laughs> joy still, I feel, on earth. There's a righteous burn on somebody with a, a humorous outtake. It's very, it's just a nice feeling, which is from youth. You know, also eating like this, covering your food so it doesn't get stolen. I still do that. I have to fight myself from, it's like growing up in prison with uh, four brothers and a sister. Because we just all goofed off and, you know, and by the time, you know, in 10th grade, my dad died in 10th grade, so it was pretty much Wild West after that. And it was just like you go, she just wrangled us and did whatever she could, to, you know, to push people in a certain direction. But it was always just do your best, sign your name to it, pretend like you, you know, which you don't always take that advice, but you, I try to pass that on to my kids. Whatever you do, do it, do it as good as you can. And then... It'll make life sh- sweeter and lo- and things, time will fly by faster. And it just is always a good thing to do and give it your all as opposed to, you know, the biggest insult is like, shoot, you know, that's a half-assed job. That would be like the thing you'd go like, oh, geez. And if we ever said I'm bored or why me, we would get in trouble. That would be the only time we'd really get, you know, you're bored? Okay, go clean the garage. Oh, God damn it. <laughs> <laughs> Why did I say that? But I think boredom, too, is a great, uh, is the greatest friend of creativity, which I don't think kids have enough of these days. You're never bored now. You're on your phone. You're doing a thing. You're playing words with friends or a video game or, you know, listening to a podcast or there's no time now for who's going to sit in their room like Eddie, Eddie Van Halen and practice guitar for 60 hours that's the one thing I worry. I mean, and, and other stuff will come re- replace it. I'm sure they went like, well, if everything's written down, what's going to happen to people's memories if we have, if we have writing? Or if things are recorded and then you hear them, how, what are imaginations going to go? Well, if, now if they can see them, well, you know, so there's always a new step. But I just wonder what the next evolution of creativity will be because in our generation, boredom was the greatest. Either you went to drugs or got in trouble or you goofed off and had fun. You know what I mean? And we goofed off and had fun. We didn't do drugs or... Well, and either one eventually leads to creativity. Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) It's just a question of how deep down what path. Who are you creative with? The police? Yeah. Are you creative with the police officer or are you creative with the... I, I always say that if people were as good of writers as they are writing excuses of why they don't write. Yeah, true. Because people, really, they always go, well, you don't understand. I have to do this, and I have this. And I was, it's like, you're telling a story. Why don't you tell a different story that's more interesting? <laughs> yeah, and write it down. <laughs> right. <laughs> what do you have on your creative bucket list? You know what I've realized? Like, we've been talking a lot during this pandemic time about, I've realized that 
my whole life, and it must be some psychological thing that's wrong with me, is like jumping into a cold pool. Every decision that isn't, okay, like it's easier for me to go to work, not go home, not sleep, give 100% to that because it's on a, a schedule. Do you know what I mean? It, it has to be done. So there's no whatever. But then when it's doing my own, like even this book, we're, try, we're trying to come up with, which should be the easiest thing in the world. Something in my brain stops me from doing that. So it's have, I, I, my new thing is trying to figure out how to get rid of all the clutter to do the thing that I want to do. There's people like you, and I think you and Mike Myers are the people who the most, you just make things. You guys keep on moving forward. You keep on doing stuff. I remember the first the first time I went to your apartment on uh, Moore Park, that one, this was what, 30 years ago, 40 years ago? Easily, yeah. And you, ac you actually had quarters in your change thing. And I went, wow, he is a rich man. He actually has quarters that he doesn't have to use. You know, I'll tell you why I had quarters in that jar, though. I had to go to auditions, and the quarters was the way to feed the meter. Ah. Because some, this was literally, I don't remember anything this acting coach taught me in acting at all. But one thing he taught us on the first day of class, always have quarters in your car <laughs> because you will be waiting in an audition too long and your meter will run out and then you'll be worried during your audition and then you'll come out and you'll get a $50 ticket and it's going to be just put the maximum amount of quarters in and I and I I lived by that in LA that's a genius that is a great that is beautiful advice because I there were a number of times I ran from the audition before I went in I'd go I'll be right back and then I ran to put two more quarters in and then I ran back and you know then you're in a flop sweat and you're saying oh this is good tasting tuna and they're like yeah. why are you so perspiring so much it's it's just a tuna sandwich see that's when I realized that I didn't have I didn't have the need to perform after I went on two auditions I went oh I don't this is not a fun experience for me I'd rather learn how to write to feed my family because I think once you, well, it depends. If you have a job like, and you're playing a role that you know how to play, it's nothing's easier. If you have a role where you don't know how to play that part and you're struggling every time, nothing's harder. But it's way easier in big picture to perform than it is to write. But writing, it seems like it's it's a little less arbitrary than performing. Because unless you unless it's so great that no one can deny it, which happens very rarely, it's usually like somebody, you know, hey, that guy loved him. Oh, man, he was great. Did you like him? I don't know. There's some about his ears. Yeah, I guess you're right. Where's the next guy? Right. <laughs> you know, so it's like everything is just, and that's the thing I think two people on the outside of show business don't realize how arbitrary everything is. They think there's a plan. I think that's why conspiracy theories are so popular because they think there's a plan for everything. And the older I get and the more I see of stuff, you realize, oh, no, no, there's no plan about anything. Things just happen. It's also tremendously unfair. Casting is such a very difficult process when you're putting together a, a family or neighbors or anybody in a sketch or anything. Sometimes you're asking the question, could these kids be with this couple? Does this work? And so, right. so that recipe gets thrown out once in a commercial, you cast this kind of mom and the daughter has to feel like she came from that. You know, and you can create... Um, mixed families. You can do a lot of things, but I do remember somebody trying to get me as a director to cast like six different style people to be a family. And I kept saying, I will cast anybody you want. Explain to me what happened. You know, did the dad get mm -hmm. divorced and marry that younger wife? Are those kids adopted to this, right? You tell me how these people came together and I'm happy to run with it. But you know, it's not, you can't have a man and a horse and that's the husband and wife. Like that doesn't work for me. Right. No, it has to be. Yeah. It has to come from. And also the thing of like, it's not fair, which is the, should be the first lesson taught in all show business classes. It's just not fair. So don't look for fairness. Don't look for, you could have been the best, you know, person that anybody wanted to see. And then, you know what? Uh, he was off that day. Well, it's just one day he was off. Well, he was off that day in the reading for the network. So we're not going to hire him. It's all just arbitrary and random. And I think a lot of people, they want to do exactly what's on the page. They write it that way. And yes, that's sort of an ideal of where they're headed. But oftentimes it's who brings themselves to the party mm -hmm. in the audition. 
And who, who surprises them with stump, something that makes it better than it was on the page? Always that. Yeah, and they go like, oh, and it's all that, and it, it is that thing of like, well, you don't have to memorize it. Well, you kind of do. You know, it's like, there's no, it's, yeah, it's way, because guess what? There's somebody out there who wants it 50 times more than you do, and they will memorize it, and they will get it down, and they will go, and they'll make a game out of it, and they'll, because it is like, it's a crazy, crazy business, and why, why would you do it if you could do anything else? Unless you love it, and it's the only thing you can do, it's like, you can't dabble in it. If you want to dabble in it, stay home and 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 do community theater and have fun and, and enjoy yourself and not, don't ruin your life by pursuing a dream that is one in one million chance of succeeding. And if this can talk you out of it, then you shouldn't have been doing it in the first place. You know, it's one of those kind of crazy things. Well, what was the most transformative moment in your career? I think really it must have been Joel getting the show on Comedy Channel, you know, when Right. So to give people the context, you were living at a place with your brother and a couple of friends, and it was famously called The Ranch, mm -hmm. which I would consider the Algonquin roundtable of poker players. Right. Um, coffee, yeah, coffee, cigarettes, and poker. That was right. pretty much it. And Joel Hodgson tapped you guys to take to Comedy Central to be, I think, essentially, the, it was a VJ position kind of thing, right? Introducing comedy clips. Yeah. Well, they, they hired him to write up like a treatment. And he just went, you know what, I've never... Because they wanted to show Mystery Science Theater 3000, which was playing on, you know, local TV in Minnesota, in Minneapolis. He said, you know, they'll never understand this. So he just flew us out with his own money, rebuilt our house in a studio, and then we filmed that, and he gave that tape to the Comedy Channel. And so that was it. Without that... We'd been in LA for like four four years or whatever. You know what I mean? We'd make our we'd make money doing colleges and stuff like that, but you know, it's not like we were regulars at the improv. We you know we do the ice house and I remember being at the ranch when Sarah Dobney and someone else they came in and they and maybe it was Joel and Sarah they were taking pictures of the living room, the kitchen, the dining room. They essentially made a David Hockney collage of the house by taking a series of Polaroids and laying them out. And they took that to New York and literally rebuilt the chintzy paneling and the everything to the T for you guys to be on. And it was Leo Yashimura, uh, who works on SNL, who, does, who did that set design, oddly enough. So it all comes full circle. And at the time, you and your brother Dave and another guy, Dave uh, Allen, who went by Gruber, had been, I think initially the name of your group was Don't Quit Your Day Job, right? Mm-hmm. And then sort of melded into the Higgins Boys and Gruber, or no? I think Joel just went, you know, it's too hard to say Don't Quit Your Day Job. I just keep on calling you guys the Higgins Boys and Gruber, which is just a way better name. Right, and you guys had a good, first of all, a very good run together, hilarious three-man sketch shows. I remember taking people to some small theaters in L.A. when you guys would put those on and do those sketches. So you're steeped in sketch, which I'm sure is really helpful in communicating on SNL and, and the tonight show with folks when you're interplaying in something that, that you're doing that. I mean, that that's in your DNA, right? Yeah. That's all I ever wanted to do. That's all we loved was, I mean, you, it was like Monty Python and second city and SNL and you know, there, there's not that many sketch shows. And then you'd watch those old clips from show of shows. It's so not boring. It's so you use every part of your brain. Oh, okay. This is exactly what I want to do. You know, now every other form of TV seems dull if it's not live. And so do, do me a favor, since you're in the, the sort of power seat at a place like SNL, if you were to advise somebody that was going to write some sketch samples, like there's a lot of sketch writers here in Austin. There are folks that are interested in being in this business. I know that people are sending in like a, to that kind of show, they're sending in some kind of sample packet. What makes a great sketch or what combination of things would be looked at if you were telling somebody here, here's what you need to do if you're planning on proving your sketch writing ability? Well, I think you would find the template, which I think you can do online. That helps. So it looks like a sketch. And then make sure you put the people's names, not the characters' names. These are the easy things you can do without any creativity. Just go make it look as much like a sketch as possible. That's one. Because the reason it is that way is because you know the rhythm of it. You know what I mean? Like people have been there long enough. You go like, okay, I, this sketch feels 
right? This like looks right. I can see the flow of it. It's that and that. And then write not what you think they want, but what you think is funny because we've already got what we want, you know? And it's the same thing with, with rehearse with, um, what do you call it? Um, auditioning. Surprise us, surprise people. And the weird thing is it has to be funny on the page. If, if you wrote a sketch that's only funny doing it, then do that and send that in. Send that to your agent and, and make them shop that around. So it's, it's the fruition of it. Because as you know, it's the different, writing is different than reading, is different than performing, is different than, there's all different layers of things. And so make sure that the sketch reads funny if you're going to send in a written submission. And then do update jokes or whatever you think your skill is. It's different packets each year. And so it's like people write commercial parodies or short films or they write sketches that they think would be good to see or a political thing or try to get the tone down of the show. You know, watch it up for the show that you know what. We usually don't do super, unless it's some crazy, crazy thing. The political humor is a little more realistic or more, you know what I mean? Not so much fantasy, you know, where sketches can be crazy and things like that. And just look at what you, what you like and stick to that. Make the Venn diagram of here's what I like. Here's what they do. Somewhere here is where I think I can live. Right. But you're saying put the actor's name, not a character name. Right. Because then it's confusing to people because that's not the way it's done on the show. What you want is you want somebody to get your script and go, oh, we could do this tomorrow. So take away anything that's not what it is. Keep stage directions sparse unless they add to the joke and just write. Right, 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 right. Yeah. Uh, Everett Greenbaum, he wrote a lot of- Did he do Spirit in the Sky? <laughs> no. Uh, Everett Greenbaum- <laughs> That's Norman Greenbaum. No. Everett Greenbaum uh, wrote uh, all the Don Knotts movies, the Mr. Lippet oh, and the yes. Ghost of Mr. Chicken and that. But he also, like the Apple Dumpling Game type of things- uh, he wrote Andy Griffith's show. He was an interesting guy that I had met early in my career, and I ended up casting him as an actor in a in a pilot that I had. But he said to me, write, uh, keep writing. Just create an arsenal. And he started with write a play, write a book, write a joke, write a grocery list. He said, eventually, you'll need everything. Yeah, true. All of it. You will plow through this the first week of work in show business. And <laughs> yeah. I believe that's what Jack Parr told Johnny Carson too. Somebody in there where they just said, you think you've written a lot in your lifetime, get on one of these shows. That's a daily show and you'll be done. You'll, everything will be spent by Saturday. Yeah, it is so true. You use everything you've ever done. And then it's like, they always say it's, it, that's what happens when you start reading stuff. That's like a writer has writer's block and you go, Oh, well now you're just writing about just, you're not writing about the world anymore. Now you're writing about yourself. But those those Don Knotts movies don't get enough love, in my opinion. They're right. very funny. Ghost of Mr. Chicken. Well, let's talk about just quickly because because this is there's so many areas we can talk. And I know you mentioned uh, the book earlier, which I'm hoping to get back to you and I writing this book. But that brought up kind of a a thought of mine is when we were starting to develop the content for this book of gags and you know, funny bits of business. You impressed me with the, the secret to spreading joy is a little bit of your philosophy. Can you talk a little bit about what makes life worthwhile in terms of making people smile or laugh? Yeah, well, I think it, that's, a, that's all, it, it's, it, you know, it's better to light a candle than curse the darkness. So it's more fun to just make things more fun. Everything should be, every, life is what it's brutish and short, you know? And it's like, why not make it as joyous as possible with little things that can make people's day brighter just to beat away the monotony or the tedium of living, you know? And it's like, isn't that the whole point of being alive is to have fun and, you know, goof off? And like all the best humor comes from goofing off. The funniest thing you've ever said wasn't on stage. It was in a living room because it was such a specific reference. You can think of times when you made people pee their pants from laughing, but rarely was it when you were on stage. It was when you were in the moment of now and listening to things and being in the present to do a joke that would make people at that moment feel like, isn't life wonderful? Because it's, it's about feeling. And especially now where everything's so shitty and we're living in a bad lifetime science fiction movie. You know, somebody said, I forget who said it, this time is the point of the movie that would be a montage. 
That's how boring and horrible this time is. <laughs> he wouldn't show it all. You just go, oh, they had to wear masks and, they, you know, and then it'd be done. But it's like, it's all about sharing joy and making people feel just happy. You know, I remember one of the times laughing the hardest in my life several times is when trying to suppress laughter. Yes. When you're not supposed to laugh and you're, I was at some esoteric play in Omaha. They were earnestly doing this playwright's content in some absurd way that like there were several people in pots where their heads were sticking out. It was just, it was a brutal watch as an audience, but the audience wasn't big enough to leave because these actors were looking out at us and there were four of us in the audience. And we thought, well, we can't leave. We can't get up. That would be the worst. So we tried not to laugh, but we were so close together that we were, you can feel the, you know, the, the laughter being held back, which only made us want to laugh more. And you didn't want to laugh at this serious thing. So, I mean, it's kind of like laughing in church. It's not cool. No, exactly. But it's like you can't help it. Especially if somebody else knowingly is looking at you, knowing that... Saying, don't laugh. Yes. Yeah, don't <laughs> yeah, Do not. This would ruin this man's life if you laughed, which just makes the stakes higher, right. so... Well, how much of your success can you uh, attribute to coffee? I'd say all of it. Now I don't know nicotine anymore, so it's really coffee is the drug of choice. It's all of those... I read all those books about early coffee houses and things like that. Of And I've cut way down. Like I used to, as you know, I used to drink coffee 24 hours a day. Just would have a cup of coffee in my hand nonstop. Now it's like in the morning and I have an espresso machine at work if it gets late and I'll have it then. But it, it is the thing that starts my day. I will go to sleep going, oh, I can't wait to have a cup of coffee in the morning. It's just a, just a delight. Because I, I made the choice. I said, well, you're gonna have to choose coffee or cigarettes. And so I went, you know what? I'd rather have coffee. Because cigarettes, kids, bad news. <laughs> Finally, something. <laughs> One-way street. One-way street. <laughs> something for the kids. Say no to dough. Yeah, something for the kids. Kids have to learn. You know, you also do a bit of walking in the city, right? I mean, between an apartment and the shows. Does How, how much does walking impact your thought process or your cleansing process creatively? I think walking is one of the best. Well, it's like all, it's like any sort of thing that gets you out of your head and into your body helps clear the path for, you know, well, it's like that book that I love that we've talked about, the one, The um, War of Art by Stephen Pressfield. It's it's a great book about, it's the thing of, of creating a, a pattern of creativity and making it so that you allow creativity to come in. So if you're working hard on something, you working harder on it isn't going to solve it. It's you letting go and your brain doesn't ever, your subconscious never stops. That's why you always hear like, I was walking through the park and suddenly the answer came to me for this scientific equation or I was going down the street and bam, that apple fell on my head. And that's why it's because your brain doesn't stop working. But if you, if all you do is work, then there's no place to refill the well. You have to have fun. You have to goof off. You have to see people. You have to go, this is my finite time out of, especially when you're first starting, you have to go, this is what I do. I'm not getting paid for it now, but this is who I am and this is what I do. And just start with a half hour. It's like, it just I, t <laughs> I tell my kids every day, you can't run a marathon tomorrow. No matter what you think, no matter what you do, you cannot run a marathon tomorrow. And that's what show business is. It's not a sprint, it's a marathon. So if you aren't practicing writing every day, then how do you, you think when you get hired by somebody, it's gonna be easier? You have to get your muscles built up. You have to get the memory built up of you can work and think of things at a fast pace and allow your brain to take in things and process them without you thinking about it. It's a sporting event where you're in it for the long haul or don't be in it for the long haul. Either way, you know, I mean, it's up to you. But if you want to do it, you have to do it. You have to keep on doing it and do it every day and make it as important as everything else. Right. Create a routine, a system that works for you. Mm -hmm. Focus on the craft, not really the results, yep. I think is a good thing. I think in the war of art, uh, Stephen Pressfield, who is we're going to have on this show coming up, he talks about resistance uh, and oh. how everything is resistance, every yes. excuse, every, I mean, it's really, really true that people can find reasons not to, there's a self-sabotaging side of us where we can get comfortably in a habit of not doing the work. 
Well, it is that thing where he says it's not, you are going to write that opera, but not today. You'll do it tomorrow. We'll start on it tomorrow. Everything I've ever thought about, like every new kid who comes to, you know, people, you know, can I talk to you about being in show business? I have copies of that book in my office. I just buy them by the tens and just say, read this. This is everything you need to know about being in show business. Or not, no, more about being a creative person. Because it doesn't give you show business lessons like the quarters, right. like the leaving, getting the car. For, that's a genius show business lesson. <laughs> it's just about how to work and how to create. And it doesn't matter what the field is. Because what I love about him, I read his book on Thermopylae, Enemy at the Gate or something like that. And then I was reading a thing on uh, this site called Brain Pickings, which is a fun site to go to. And it said, here's the best books on writing. And it was like Stephen King's book, which is fantastic. And then number two was his book. And I go, well, I have to get that because I love, I didn't know he wrote that, you know. And then I read this book and I've read it 10 times. I got the book on tape. Every once in a while, I'll just go back to it. And it is truly one of the best things I've ever, ever. I couldn't be a bigger fan of that guy. In this Conversations of Creativity, we always want the listener to have something they can go to. I think your recommendation of The War of Art is a good one. And also just the, the stuff you were saying in the beginning about how to give a note. That is not just uh, applicable to actors or writers. It really is diplomacy in life, how to how to be diplomatic in criticism in some ways. Life is a poker game. And it is like you get a hand if you're too excited, especially in show business. If you want that role too much, people go, oh, I have something about that guy I don't trust. If you have a royal flush and you put, and you're paying, you know, quarter nickel dime, and the first thing you do is throw $5 in, everybody's going to fold. You're not going to win the hand. You have to play it easy and you have to make it so that what you're doing, you, and, and if you beat somebody who's losing and you you don't gloat, you know, you can gloat if you've taken down the guy who has giant chips. Mm -hmm. It's all about that, you know, again, it's listening and reacting to the moment you're in and letting the world come into you so that you cannot be in the past or the present, so you're in the future now. So you can, that joke you made now won't be funny five minutes from now. It's that the joke that you're talking about now is a thing that you can, it's just of the moment. I remember one time, and this is for the older kids, any kids listen to this, ask your mom and dad, but at work one time, Colin Quinn is one of the funniest people ever. Uh, Hugh Fink, who's a very funny writer too, was wearing a turtleneck, a maroon turtleneck, I believe, and a aquamarine shark skin suit to the show. He thought it looked sharp. And Quinn looked at him and he goes, Fink, you look like you're on your way to buy your third Leroy Neiman painting, which I thought was one of the funniest things I'd ever heard because Leroy Neiman was like a playboy artist who would always do like paintings of fights and stuff like that. And he was like very specific. <laughs> and it's not his first his third, his third Leroy Neiman. And it's th things like that. Right. It's everything. It's so specific. It's so specific, yet so perfect. And again, that one in a script, maybe that'd be kind of funny. But in real life, it was like spit coffee out, getting punched in the side of the head with pure, just pure joy humor. Just a, a burn that was a fun, yeah. not a mean burn, not like something to make somebody cry. Just a fun, go <laughs> goofy thing. Well, you, you, I will say this about your humor in general and, and you being to be around you is that you are never mean spirited. I try. <laughs> well, I'm not around you all the time. I'm sure that I'm sure, I'm sure your family yeah, might yeah. differ with me on that. I, I do remember a time when I was writing on the writing staff at Seinfeld. And for some reason, I don't know why they do this, but they, some company was trying to name some new perfumes and they sent the samples FedEx to the offices, the Seinfeld offices, and I think it was for a People magazine or something. It was, can you name these different scents? And so instead of Jerry doing it alone, he had us, the, there were three or four of us in there with him, and he would just open up a little vial and put it under your nose, and then you had to name it. I just had a whiff of this very odd, musty, old kind of smell, and I said, Liberace's coffin pillow. <laughs> <laughs> and it, it was just, it just came from the sense that weird yeah yeah smell and it's sort of like I don't know that I would have ever put those words next to each other no but but the scent but because you were living in the moment 
the <laughs> the set made you say that. Right. It is. It's like also he talks about the muse, Stephen um, Pressfield, and that's what it is. You can't. You don't own that joke. It just, you know, it. Are you? Fun, you know what I mean? It's like it just stuff happens, and that's the because there's not anybody in show business who's in comedy who thinks they wake up some morning and go, oh, I forgot. I'm, not, I'm never going to be funny again. I've just forgotten how to be funny. And everybody lives in the state of imposter syndrome. I don't know anybody who doesn't have that. And I don't know anybody who, when they're first starting out, isn't scared shitless all the time. And the more I think you know that and can acknowledge that, the more more of a good life you'll have. And the more you go, don't listen to the reviews. If you listen to the reviews when they say you're bad, and you, if they say you're good, then you have to listen to them when they say you're bad. And also, everybody who's in show business is broken somehow. So you just have to figure out how you're broken and not, not cure it, but cope with that brokenness. Like, usually when you hate an actor, when you go like, I hate that guy, almost always you're jealous of that person. So if you just go, oh, I'm just jealous of that person, it will name it to claim. You got to go, that's what it is. Oh, I'm jealous. I didn't realize that. I wanted that role. It's like people complain about successful stand-ups. And they go like, well, why, why aren't you complaining about them anymore? They're still standing up. They're still doing their act. Why aren't they just as bad now as they were then when they were super successful? Oh, I see. It's the success you're complaining about. Oh, I get it. So don't live in that world. Right. You know, because it just hurts you. It just eats. Just, it's just corrosive and eats you alive because then there's no winning. You just made me realize, Steve, why I hate you so much. <laughs> I'm jealous of you. Exactly. I got it all. You're the, I got it you're all, the guy with the lampshade on the head at the party and everybody wants to be you. But you are indeed the life of the party. I'm so grateful that you spent this time with me chatting about creativity and about show business. You know, I think the world of you, pal, and I wish you continued success in whatever direction you go. Same to you, my love. And we will get together again soon because we are going to birth that book, that baby God book. God damn it, we're going to do it. And I think you'll have a better time just fathering it and not worrying about fathering and mothering it. So Yes, exactly. You inseminate and... me with the words and I will deliver the book. <laughs> All right, I will talk to you later. All right, cheers. Thank you, pal. Thanks for listening. Take a moment to subscribe and you will always have an invitation to join us for more creative conversations and a weekly spark of inspiration. Our show is a production of Sweetwood Creative in Austin, Texas, with editing by audio aficionado Tony Deo. Our original music theme was written and sung by Maya Sharp. Additional support courtesy of our creative posse, Delilah Lovejoy, Casey Franco, Tucker Hazel, and Diane Johansson. Please feel free to share your input or dash off a review on social media to help grow our creative community. You can find us on Instagram at Pat Hazel with two L's, on Facebook, or by visiting our website at creativityincaptivity.fun. Yeah, you heard that. It's dot fun because dot com is just not fun. Cheers. Stare.